there's a survey done just, I don't know, a few years back about the central purpose of Christmas and what, what's the most significant thing uh, that you would think Christmas to be if you had to kind of crystallize it into one idea. And um, the survey group was 1,008 people. 88% um, affirmed that they would be Christian. So 88% of this group said they're Christian. So to the question, what's the most significant part of Christmas, um, 37% said the birth of Jesus. Um, the top shelf went to uh, family time. The most significant issue of Christmas is family time, 44%. So let me be the first to clear it up for you. If you're confused, uh, it would be the birth of Christ. I mean, th- that, that is what we celebrate. I feel like Vince Lombardi, you know, at the beginning of spring training, his, uh, he was a great football coach, and he would always say, this is a football. We're going to start with the basics. You know, this is a football. Um, the reason we celebrate Christmas is to rejoice over God fulfilling a promise that he would deliver a Messiah, a Savior, a rescuer to us in this world of trouble that we're in. And that's, that's fundamentally what it's about, God promising a Messiah to come and deliver. Now, that's why we've been studying these Messianic Psalms. A Messianic Psalm is a psalm about the Messiah. And we've looked at Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 45, and, and today it's going to be Psalm 110. I think this is kind of the crown jewel of them all, if you will. And the reason I say that Psalm 110 is the crown jewel, is because it's quoted more times than any other psalm in the New Testament. 27 times, either by direct or indirect allusion. So, obviously, the New Testament writers found it to be very instructive in their explaining who Jesus Christ is. But then the second reason, I think it's really one of the greatest, is because it's purely prophetic. It's purely messianic. In other words, we looked at Psalm 45 last week, and it was kind of this wedding song saying for a king, and it may have had some historical meaning at the time, but it, it looked more towards Christ. This one can't look at anybody but Christ. I mean, Jesus used this psalm in Matthew 22 to explain to the religious leaders that the Messiah had to be both the son of David, which they agreed with, but he also had to be the son of God. He had to be the son of God, divine and human. So, so it's, it's unique in applying only to Jesus. And then thirdly, I think it's the greatest because of its message. In other words, God, Yahweh speaks throughout this psalm. And in this psalm, he commissions Jesus to three tasks. He says, you're going to be a king with a kingdom that will go to the ends of the universe. You're going to be a priest, and you're going to save people by reconciling them to me. And you're going to be a judge. You're going to bring about a perfect equity in this world. Every injustice, every unfairness, you will judge and make right. What an unfathomable task to give to this Messiah. In fact, I think God spoke this way to magnify his son for us. Now, we want to magnify him. And when we magnify Christ, we don't make him bigger, but he becomes bigger to our understanding. In fact, Henry Law was a English Puritan, and he said this. He says that contemplating Christ 
sanctifies us. The more you and I think, consider, dwell upon, meditate, roll around in our minds the reality of what Christ is being called to do and in fact has done, that changes us. That changes us. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 110. In, in fact, there is a, I was reading this book, before I read Psalm 110, it's called The, the uh, Hero Theory of History. Hero Theory of History. And this one sociologist was making the argument that we love heroes. We want heroes. We, we look at heroes to be changing our culture. It's not embraced by all. Some people think society makes heroes. Some other people think heroes make society. But but I, I think unconsciously, I think we do kind of adhere to this hero theory. This idea, if one hero could come, he could change things. If one person uniquely that had the power, that had the compassion, that had the grace, if one person could come, it could change us. I think we have our hero here in Psalm 110. Let's read it together. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Kind of confusing at the first read. I think you'll agree. But the three things we're going to see is this declaration by God to the Messiah, to his son, you're going to be a king. And he assures him of this kingship, this reign, this kingdom that will extend to the ends of the earth. Why? Because he's going to sit at his right hand. I mean, this is Yahweh, that first Lord in all caps is Yahweh. It's a covenantal name for God. It's how he reveals himself. And he's saying, Yahweh is saying to the Messiah, the Lord, Adonai, this king. He says, you're going to have a kingdom. I'm going to give you a kingdom that will go to the ends of the universe. And, of course, the question is, well, how do I know that? Sit at my right hand. Now, to sit at my right hand, we have the same expression. He's a right-hand man. It's a position of power. I mean, it's a position of strength. After God had crushed the Egyptian army as they tried to pursue the Israelites, chapter 15 of Exodus, Moses leads a song, and he says, your right hand has shattered the enemies. I mean, the right hand is a power hand. It's a hand of authority and dominion. God is saying to this Messiah, you will have a power. By being at my right hand, nothing will stop your kingdom from extending itself. Twenty times Jesus is said in the New Testament to sit at the right hand. But it's not just a position of power, it's a position of privilege. I mean, to be at the right hand, you have unfettered access to God. You just lean over and talk to him. I mean, it's a position of privilege. It's a position of unfettered access, just talking, being next to God. This is the reason we have the confidence that the kingdom of Christ will extend to the ends of the world. Why? Because he's at the right hand of God. There's no thwarting it. In fact, that's why God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
I mean, this idea of making an enemy a footstool is an expression of total dominion. There's going to be no enemy to Christ's kingdom that will ultimately stand. Now, you know the expression, make an enemy a footstool. You see it in the Old Testament. If If a defeated king was brought before the victorious king, they would be forced to lie on their face. And then the victorious king would take his foot and step on his neck. His neck would be a footstool for the victorious king. It indicated total domination. You have nothing before me. You are absolutely vanquished. God is saying to the son, your kingdom, your enemies will be a footstool. You will step on their necks to show the total domination. Now, what's interesting when you read the psalm, though, is it says the scepter will go out of Zion or out of Jerusalem into the midst of your enemies. So this isn't like a one-battle war. It isn't like one event that Jesus, the king, is going to come back and just obliterate all of his enemies. It's not going to be that way. Until I make your enemies a footstool. There seems to be a delay in time. There seems to be that this kingdom of the Messiah, this Jesus' kingdom, is going to work its way out into the midst of his enemies. And we know the enemies of the kingdom. It's not just ideologies and philosophies, but it's governments, it's people. It's those who are opposed to Christ. We've seen it from the beginning. But he says they'll all fail. They'll all fail. There won't be one kingdom that stands against the kingdom of Christ. Now, we've, now look in three with me, because here's kind of a twist to it. How is this kingdom coming? It says your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In other words, God, the Father, Yahweh, is going to give a people to this Messiah. And it's going to be the people that offer themselves freely to carry out the kingdom. It's going to be the church that carries the kingdom out. That, 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 that the slow migration of Christ's kingdom to the farthest ends of the universe will be through his people as they're arrayed in holy attire. Now, folks, you see this in the New Testament. You don't have to get very far in reading in the New Testament. You see Jesus come, and what's he do? He preaches the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Right? And, and then what's he do? He begins to display the power of the kingdom by healing the sick and by cleansing the demonized, even by raising the dead. But here's something. You see the power of the kingdom by Jesus Christ rescuing people out of the kingdom of darkness. He begins to collect people around him. He begins to save people and transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son that he loves. That you see this migration of people beginning to follow Jesus. And then, then, of course, you see Jesus ascend to the right hand, and what happens when he ascends to the right hand? What happens right before he ascends to the right hand? He says to his people, as they are arrayed in their holy attire, he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Do you see, from the right hand, he has all authority. And now he distributes it, delegates it to the church, and says, you now go to the nations. You now go from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. That's what we see, right, in Acts chapter 1, right? Peter gets up and begins to preach, and what happens? 3,000 people are rescued. They're delivered into this kingdom of light. I mean, the kingdom is now beginning to move. And that's why he said, he said, that the power is going to move from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to where? The ends of the earth. 
It's all as God promised, because Christ is at the right hand of God. In fact, it's going to go all the way to the ends when our feet will finally be on the neck of Satan. It's interesting. Paul writes in Romans 16, 20, he says, by the grace of God, you will put your feet on the neck of Satan. Isn't that amazing? Satan will be a footstool for our feet as his kingdom goes out to the ends of the world. That's the promise that Yahweh gave to Jesus. I think we see, we're 2,000 years hence, right? So we see this migration of the kingdom already, haven't we? I mean, we've seen it. Sometimes we feel kind of sad and forlorn. The church is in retreat, and we kind of are overwhelmed. What's really happening? But is it? I mean, has it not gone to every corner? Is it not moving? Now, I, I do want to say, I, for, the, for the person here who's not a Christian, perhaps you're thinking about it, you're questioning it, or perhaps you struggle. You are a Christian, and you struggle with this kind of thing. You're like, well, where is his reign? I mean, it does seem like the world is, is undergoing such upheaval. You know, you read these reports in Iraq and Syria and just the travail the church is going through, and is he really reigning? I mean, does it really look that way to you? And many of us really wonder. We do kind of hunker down and get that fortress mentality. We actually get a little bit nervous. Well, gee, I hope, is this promise trustworthy? I mean, can we really trust God in all that he says? Well, I just want to remind you, and maybe you know this, but let me, let me just encourage you to think upon it again. There is an implied delay to the full extent of Christ's kingdom. In other words, there seems to be this delay of time. And I think you see it when he says this, that sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there seems to be this delay of time. Theologians call this the now and the not yet. The now, Jesus is reigning now, but Jesus is not yet reigning fully. So he is reigning truly now, but he's not yet reigning fully. That there is this time. Now, when he does reign, it will be a time of rest and rejoicing. But until that time, it's marked rather by proclamation and persecution. We live in this time where the kingdom's going into the world, that the kingdom of God coexists with the kingdom of man, and it coexists in tension and conflict. And so this is the time where his people, who have been given to Christ, go out in their holy attire, proclaim the gospel so that the kingdom does go to the ends of the world, but it's in conflict, and it's in persecution, and it's in trouble. That's the season we live in. And this shouldn't surprise us. I mean, when Jesus came, we have sanitized Christmas, I think. We've made it kind of like this Norman Rockwell picture. It wasn't that way. When Jesus came to be a child, he came in the midst of his enemies. I mean, he was a hunted child. And Herod went after him. And there was probably up to word, maybe upwards of 200 babies slaughtered in his attempt to crush this child. And Jesus' ministry was hardly done to the, to the collapse of people, thankful that their Messiah has come. He ministered in the midst of his enemies. The religious leaders opposed him. Satan was opposed to him. Even people were apathetic to him, just like today. Eh, whatever. And he died in the midst of his enemies. He was surrounded by the Roman government, of course, bringing about the execution, but, but the religious elite just casting, casting their insults to him. 
So Jesus initiated this kingdom in the midst of his enemies. And so we live in the midst of our enemies. We shouldn't be surprised to that. That shouldn't be a shock to us. But there does come a day when it will be meted out in its fullness. And it's the day that Christmas reminds us. One author said it this way. She said this. She said, on this side of eternity, Christmas is still a promise. Yes, the Savior has come, and with him, peace on earth. But the story is not finished. There's peace in our hearts, but we long for peace in the world. Every Christian is still a turning of the page until Jesus returns. Every December 25 marks another year that draws us closer to the fulfillment of the ages, that draws us closer to home. When we realize that Jesus is the answer to our deepest longings, even Christmas longings, each Advent brings us closer to his glorious return. When we see him as he is, King of kings and Lord of lords, then that will be the true Christmas. So that's the first thing God has made clear, is that Jesus will have a reign, it will be everywhere, but it's going to be through the midst of his enemies. Now, for the Christian here, you know the reign of God exists. You can see how Jesus reigns. In other words, you see how Jesus reigns as the saints willingly embrace sacrifice for the kingdom. That's how you know that Christ is reigning with you. Because if you're willingly sacrificing for the advancement of his kingdom, then clearly Christ is reigning in your life as opposed to you reigning in your life. And we see this in our lives as we pray for the kingdom to come. As we give of our own earthly treasures to to move the kingdom forward. As we're willing to sacrifice. It may have a global import. For some of you, it may be going overseas to literally go to the ends of the world to declare the gospel. But it doesn't have to be global. It can be local. I mean, you can just intend to have conversations with people in your family or in your workplace where you do, you do seek to declare the kingdom has come in Christ. I mean, this is how we know this willingness to lose my reputation, to declare that I am part of a kingdom that is coming in power and glory. That's how you know Christ is reigning, because you'd rather declare his kingdom than receive their applause. You know, there's a tragic story, tragic in one way, very instructive in another. Just recently, uh, there were four children, all under 15, Christians, who were beheaded by ISIS. Now, what was interesting was before they were called to follow Muhammad. And according to Andrew, Andrew White, the canon, the vicar, Anglican priest in Baghdad, he said <clears throat> once they commanded that these children follow Muhammad, the kids, all under 15, said, no, we love Yeshua. Yeshua is Arabic, also Hebrew for Jesus. We love Yeshua. Then they say, we've always loved Yeshua. And then off came their heads. Now, you don't have a problem understanding they clearly see Christ reigning in their lives because they don't secure their own well-being. They don't protect themselves. They are for the kingdom in full measure. You can't be any more for the kingdom than that example. When you look at those kids, you say, Christ reigns. He reigns over their lives, at least. He may not be reigning over the situation in terms of a visible, but he reigns over their lives. That's how you know the kingdom of God has come to you. 
that you care about the kingdom, that you sacrifice for the kingdom. But not just that, that you're satisfied in the kingdom. The second mark of the Christian who is, who is seeing Christ reign is we're satisfied. We're happy in life. Listen, a lot of us are going through troubles and trials. I have no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, are we not more grateful that we know Christ and that Christ is fully coming in power and glory He reigns over all things, even over the difficult circumstances that we have. I mean, the circumstances that we have, though difficult, don't determine the reign of Christ. Because Christ is able, at the right hand, with all power and with all access to God, he's able to take those circumstances and move them toward our good. That's what he promises us. So when you have the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, they were ministering to the Christians in prison, and they were losing their property. Their property was being confiscated. So it says in Hebrews 10, it says that they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their properties because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. In other words, they knew Christ is at the right hand. I have no fear. I have no fear because he's at the right hand. He can only do good by me because he's my king. And that's how you see the rain. So when you go through trial, you experience hardship, do we turn to Christ and contemplate him sitting at the right hand? He will persevere me because he is my king. So it's the first thing we see, that God has promised to Jesus, you'll have a kingdom, it will go to the ends of the earth. And this kingdom is going to be delayed in its full measure, and you can see the evidence of the kingdom by the willingness that we sacrifice and by the satisfaction that we have. I pray that you have that satisfaction. I do pray that you would find the reality of Christ seated. I want you to think about that. I mean, if you can move in your mind's eye to consider Christ seated at the right hand with full power and with unfettered access, appealing to God for you, that would strengthen you. It would strengthen you. Even in the midst of circumstances, you would be moved to have less fear and more faith and more confidence. I pray that's, that's what you will begin to draw as you hear it, as we just magnify this Christ. But secondly, you see that he's going to be a priest. This is kind of unusual. Look with me in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're a priest forever. Now, notice first in the first part of the verse, The Lord has sworn. So God has made a promise. He's made an oath. But then he doubles it, or seems to, because he says he will not change his mind. I guess that's somehow to already affirm that we trusted his promise in the first place. It's like a double promise. He is making an irrevocable promise to us that this Jesus, who I will send, will not just be a king, but he's also going to be a priest. This is huge. Remember now, if you study the Old Testament, you know that kings can't be priests. And priests can't be kings. The two that tried it didn't end up well. Uzziah, he got leprosy. Saul, he tried to do some sacrificing. He ended up losing the kingdom. It was a separation of powers. Kings were not priests and priests were not kings. This Jesus is different. He's altogether different. You know, when you think about the Old Testament priests, you think about their temporal nature, right? You can only serve as a priest for a number of years. It had to rotate. And their work wasn't just temporal, but it was almost superficial. It was almost ineffectual. Why? Because they had to keep sacrificing these animals year after year after year. They didn't get it. 
They couldn't offer once to take away sins. They had to just keep showing what it would be like when it finally does come. Jesus is a different kind of priest than the priests that you see in the Old Testament. He's according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Well, he's kind of the mystery guy of the hour, actually. Very little about him in the Bible. You see him in one place, Genesis 14, 18 to 20. That's all you see. You see this guy just appear out of nowhere. He has no lineage. He has no birth. He has no death. He just kind of appears on the scene. And he just somehow bumps into Abraham. Abraham has defeated his armies that were threatening him, and he took all the spoil. And so Abraham comes up, and he sees Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, the name means king of righteousness. We know that he's the king of Salem, or perhaps Jerusalem, before it became Jerusalem. But he's the king of peace. And so we see Abraham, and he's known as the priest of the God Most High, El Elyon. And Abraham comes, and he gives a tenth of all of his spoils, and he gives them to this priest. And the priest mediates between God and Abraham. Remember, there were no Levites then, because Abraham hadn't had a child. There's no Levitical priesthood. He just seems to be a priest out of nowhere, over the nations is what he looks like. That's all we know about him. And then we see this kind of cryptic reference in Psalm 110. But then the writer of Hebrews spends a whole chapter on him. Chapter 7 is all about this priest. And we find out that Melchizedek is like a type, a type of Jesus. Let me explain what a type is. A type or a model in the Old Testament was something that God would do that would help explain God's future plans. So in other words, the sacrificial system was a type. Right, You see the lambs, well the lambs, lambs don't take away sins, but they give us a picture of a lamb that will come that will take away sins. Or, or the temple itself, this brick and mortar, people gather to worship God, that's a type. It would be then replaced by the church, the church, people gathering together, held by not mortar but by the gospel. That would be. The communion, that would be where God would now dwell among his people. So this Melchizedek is just a snapshot to show us of what Jesus would be. Jesus is a unique priest. He's not just a priest, but he's a king priest. But not just that, he's not a temporal priest. Like Melchizedek, who had no father or mother, Jesus had no, he has no beginning or end. He's eternal. In fact, that's what makes him a priest forever. Think about it. Jesus will forever represent you to God. Never will we not need Jesus. Never will Jesus abandon us. Never will we have to seek another path to God. Never. He's a priest forever. In fact, we're encouraged in Hebrews, he says this, um, because Jesus lives forever, he is a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Isn't that amazing? He lives forever. It says that he is able to save us completely because of his eternal priesthood. But not only is it eternal, it's effectual. In other words, his priesthood is effectual. It actually forgives sins. All the lambs that were slaughtered, all the blood that was shed, cannot take one sin away. It was only pointing to his priesthood that he would finally give of not a lamb, but he would give of himself. This is what assures us 
for the Christian that you are forgiven. It's not a potential salvation. It's an actual salvation. He actually earned forgiveness from God because of his sacrifice. We see this again in Hebrews 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referencing Christ, when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, reference to Psalm 110, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is, this is really incredible, the glory of this priesthood, that it's eternal and it's effectual for us. And God had said, you will be a king and you will have a kingdom, but you will also be a priest and you're going to save people unto yourself. Now, if you're not a Christian here, Christmas, I think, has a unique word of hope for you. Because, you know, we all deal with, I think, <clears throat> Christmas, the end of the year, we look back in the year, we have regret, we have remorse, we have a degree of sadness over what we're not, what we want to be, and, and we are kind of burdened by the sin and the shame of this life. And for the non-Christian, what do you do with that? What do you do with the guilt that just piles up week after week, over not doing what you should do, not being who you think you ought to be, not responding in the manner that you think you ought to respond. What do you do? Well, this is what causes a lot of despair and loneliness at Christmas is the reality that we are broken. And, and the news at Christmas for the non-Christian is that he has come to deliver. He's come to save us from all the regret, all the remorse, all the sadness, all the unconfessed sin. You know, the scriptures are clear that without holiness, you cannot see God. Without holiness, you cannot see God. I have met very few people who will be ready to proclaim their holiness, but now we have one. We have a priest who can make us holy so that we can see God. This is the good news. I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian here, what will you do with your regret? What will you do with your sins? What will you do with the condemnation that you heap on yourself? Christ stands ready to save, to deliver. It was his commission. You will be a king, you will be a priest to save a people. But if you're a Christian here, boy, for me, this fourth verse is, it's like Gibraltar. You stand on it, it doesn't move. There is a true and a real forgiveness offered by faith. There is, you know, we can finally be honest with ourselves that we're in a wicked, bad position and, and that we're really sorry because we have someone so great and so powerful and so worthy and so successful in saving us that we can be honest with who we are and run to him that you are forgiven. So it, it, again, it's not a potential. It's a, you might be, you are forgiven. It's been established in Christ. This is what led uh, Charles Spurgeon, that great British preacher in the 19th century, here, here's what he wrote regarding the confidence that we have in Christ's saving capacity. He said this. He said, The bridge of grace will bear your weight, brother or sister. Thousands of big sinners have gone across that bridge, yea, tens of thousands have gone over it. Excuse me. 
Some have been the chief of sinners, and some have come at the very last of their days. But the arch has never yielded beneath their weight. He says, I will go with them, trusting to the same support. It will bear me over as it has borne them over. This is the confidence we have at Christmas, that we can rejoice that his sacrifice is sufficient for us. Christian, this is a point of rejoicing. This is a point where we stop and we just say, thank you for saving me. I can finally admit I'm at the stage of my life, I've forgotten a lot of my sins. But he hasn't. And those too have been forgiven. It's incredible. What a grace we have been given to us. But not just that, but he's established communion with us. That the sacrifice that Christ, as our priest, he has established for us a communion with God. In other words, we don't want to just look at the utility of the cross. The utility of the cross, well, he saved me from my, my sins. He's done more than that. He has saved you from your sins so that you can be adopted into God's family. You can have communion with God. I know this sometimes seems so ethereal, this communion with God. It's really just being a child of God. I mean, what do you think of God as your father? What what comes to your mind? Is there fear? Is there resentment? Is there a sense of dread? Is there impending judgment? Or is there acceptance? Is there joy? Is there satisfaction? He has come, you know, in fact, that's what Ephesians chapter 1, he says, in love he predestined us through Christ to be adopted as sons and daughters in accordance with his good pleasure to the praise of his glorious grace. Think about it. In Christ we are now adopted. We have full access. We don't need a mediator. We don't need sacrifices to be offered. You now have unfettered access, just like before, of Christ with God. You can speak with him, boldly coming into his presence with confidence as Keith prayed even before I preached. I mean, don't make light of this. Even though you're a sinner, you have access. This is a prayer from Martin Luther, kind of a poem. It just takes me a second to read it, but let me, let me read it to you. Because I think you'll identify with his self-assessment, but then listen to how it ends. He says, I do not come because my soul is free from sin, and pure and holy and worthy of thy grace. I do not speak to thee because I've ever justly kept thy laws and dare to meet thy face. I know that sin and guilt combine to reign over every thought of mine and turn from good to ill. I know that when I try to be upright and just and true to thee, I am a sinner still. I know that often when I strive to keep a spark of love alive for thee, the powers within leap up in insubmissive might and oft benumb my sense of right and pull me back to sin. I know that though in doing good I spend my life, I never could atone for all I've done. But though my sins are black as night, I dare to come before thy sight, because I trust thy Son. In him alone my trust I place, come boldly to thy throne of grace, and there commune with thee. Salvation sure, O Lord, is mine, and all unworthy I am thine. For Christ died for me. So even the Christian who looks at their lives sees the nature of sin because Christ is our high priest. We can still boldly come to God. Don't let sin thwart you from enjoying the sonship that Christ's blood has established. That's why we rejoice at Christmas. God sent him to be a king. He sent him to be a priest. And then to put on top of everything else, his priesthood calls him to intercede for us even now. In fact, Romans 8.34 kind of conflates this passage into its own. It says this, 
It says, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand interceding for us. He intercedes for me now as I preach. He intercedes for you now as you listen or struggle to pay attention or overwhelmed with guilt or rejoicing right now over, over his goodness in your life. Think about the confidence that will come knowing that he intercedes for you. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish preacher in the 19th century. Here's what he said about the intercession of Christ. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Consider that for a minute. His role as priest in your life is to intercede for you so that you finish holy and perfect. It won't be because you got a new Bible. It will be because he's prayed for you and he's interceded for you. But he's not just king and he's not just priest, but he's also judge. Now, I would ask you to, this is a sober text we're looking at in 5, 6, and 7. Look at it real quickly. He says this, the Lord is at your right hand, so now Yahweh is at the hand of this Messiah. He says he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is a picture where, it's a future picture, it's a final portrait of Christ. No longer is he in the midst of his enemies, he's actually now reigning over his enemies. And he will reign over them. You know, Henry Law said, you raise a rebel hand to God and he'll ground you to powder. This is the picture we see here. This sobering picture of judgment. Let me just give it to you from another angle. In, in Revelation chapter 6, John writes, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was removed from its place. Then the kings, listen, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and they asked, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You see this incredible, fearful picture of this Lamb of God leaving the right hand of God, leaving the throne to bring and execute judgment on the nations. Terrifying picture. Paul speaks about it in this way. He says this, that God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is, that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. This is a picture that will come. This is a picture. I was listening to Handel's Messiah last night, and the six stands or verse, or I don't know what they call them, there's about 21 of them. It says, who may abide the day of his coming? Who can abide it? Folks, you won't get to this thought by just casting a glancing idea at it. You have to think about it. The wrath of the Lamb leaves the right hand of God to execute judgment on the nations. That's the picture. That's part of the entire package. He's going to be a king, he's going to be a priest, and he's going to be a judge. Now, I think, even if you're not a Christian here, and if you are a Christian and you struggle with this, I think you'd agree with me. Judgment does make sense. It does. At one level, judgment makes sense. 
If you've ever been a victim of a crime, if you've ever been mistreated, if you've ever been treated unfairly, you and I know that feeling in us that we want retribution, we want justice, we want reconciliation. We want to, maybe it's a husband in your life. Maybe it's an employer. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe someone's turned against you. You know that feeling that wells up in you, and you want justice. This is a mark of how you, this is why you know you bear God's image. But even if you haven't been treated harshly, let's say you're just a person who loves causes. You know, you, you take up the cause of poverty, or you want to fight for the cause of child slavery, or you want to fight for a cause that our world's being mistreated and creation's being ruined. Even then, at least you who want to fight a cause, you know something's out of order. Something's not right. Something has to be done to get things in order. This is evidence to you that you bear God's image. This is evidence that you agree with judgment. Because what judgment is, the essence of God's judgment is God moving against those who have brought disorder to bring order. That's what the essence of judgment. The God will move against anyone or anything that has worked against his creation. Now, the bad news is that's all of us. Every one of us. We're children of wrath, Paul says. Every one of us is an enemy of God. It's only through repentance and faith that we're moved from an enemy to a friend. Every one of us. Like Jesus says it in John chapter 5, 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is the only way, through repentance and faith. I, I, I know that we often think, well, I'm not an enemy of God. But remember, to be ambivalent to the creator of the entire universe who demands your allegiance, that is a crime. To be dismissive. You don't have to be antagonistic to be ambivalent, to just have this benign rejection of him is sin nonetheless, and it puts you at odds with God. I mean, think about our lives. Every one of us has brought disorder, haven't we? I mean, I've brought, I've brought disorder into my relationships at a point in time, into this world, into my own soul I brought disorder. We all need to be delivered. If you're not a Christian here, I would just ask you to consider it. You know, J.C. Ryle was another British preacher in the 19th century. He said, hell is a truth found too late. Don't, don't let that be. I, I want to persuade you to consider these things. You have within yourself a desire for justice to be meted out for yourself. Doesn't God have the same? I would, I would encourage you. What would this day be like for you? For the Christian here, and for the non-Christian, that's where we repent and place our faith and trust in the priest who has come to save. But for the Christian here, folks, don't lose the sobriety of this message because you've passed out of judgment. Don't lose the seriousness of this. God has acted historically with judgment. Adam and Eve, the flood, the Tower of Babel. I mean, Folks, we stand free because of the great judgment upon the Son, that God brought judgment upon the Son for our sins. And God punished him. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God to deliver us from our sins. What freedom we have in that. That's why we've passed from judgment to life, because he was judged for us. So judgment is historical, and it's going to be future. But let judgment soften your heart. The anger that you have to people, 
God says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. You don't have to seek vengeance. You don't have to seek retribution. You don't have to grind an ax against somebody. You don't need to bring words to bear against somebody because they've hurt you. You have been spared judgment. You can walk in grace. You have, by the power of the Spirit, an ability to walk in grace and to walk in love. But it's a sober reminder. It moves me to want to be more missional, to to want to be more engaging of sacrifice for the benefit of the kingdom. Because this will be a reality that many people will find too late. But for the Christian, rejoice with me that you have one who has been your priest and therefore has been, and he has not just borne your judgment, but you have passed out of that judgment into life. Let's just take a minute now and just quietly speak to God about these issues. Or perhaps you need to listen to God and what he has said to you. And uh, just a few moments of silence, and then Ray is going to close us in prayer.